All right, second week of our prodigal series, this is where we're taking a look at this beautiful and familiar passage um, and trying to find ways that we can apply it in our lives today. I'm not going to waste a lot of time, so we're just going to dive in. I know Micah already set all this up last week. She did a wonderful job. Uh, yeah, but I'm going to go ahead and, and set it up a little bit just in case some of you didn't have a chance to hear it or you weren't here. Uh, this is coming from the 15th chapter of the Gospel of Luke. And here we see Jesus as he starts out the 15th chapter. He's hanging out with, with some folks. And the Pharisees are also there. And the Pharisees don't approve of who he's hanging out with. So they're pointing fingers and they're muttering and they're talking under the breath and talking about Jesus and all of his new friends. And Jesus, he sees what's happening here, so he decides to use this as a teaching moment. So he begins to tell three different stories. We call them parables, right? The first is a story of the lost sheep, where the shepherd leaves the 99 sheep to go find the one that was lost. And then he tells the parable of the lost coin. These are both beautiful metaphors of God's diligence and perseverance in bringing home the children that he loves to the fold. But he wasn't done. He looks around this crowded room, and then he says this. There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had. He set off for a distant country and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and he went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate, for the son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and he asked him, what was going on? And your brother has come, he replied. And your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in, so his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. You never gave me even a young goat so that I could celebrate with my friends. But when the son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me. And everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. 
He was lost. He was found. God, we give you praise for this beautiful story, and we give you praise for your word. God, I recognize that this is a story that many of us have heard perhaps even hundreds of times, while at the same time there are some of us who perhaps are hearing it for the first time regardless. Father, I pray that you make it new and fresh for us right now in this moment. Pierce our hearts with the truth that are hidden in this message. And just, put, just let me get out of the way. Don't let me mess this up. Speak to our hearts. Your servants are listening. We ask in your holy name. Amen. Now this story, uh, is, this parable is called many names. Uh, some have called it the parable of the lost son. The parable of the loving or lovesick father. Uh, probably the most common is the, the, the parable of the prodigal son. Um, the word prodigal, as Micah explained last week, is, is usually understood as excessive, uh, luxurious, wasteful, extravagant spending, which is why I, refer, I love referring to it as the parable of the prodigal father for the extravagant way that he lavished his love upon his wayward son. But it's also called the parable of the two sons, which is apropos for a two-week teaching series. So we're going to go with that today, right? But all of these are right. But it's a, it's a story of family drama, right? Who doesn't love a story of family drama? As long as you're not in it, right? It's, the unfortunate truth is we all have family drama. And this specific drama is rooted in sibling rivalry. Now, how many here have siblings? Yeah. Okay, who is the older sibling? Who's the younger sibling? See, I'm... I'm the baby, and my brother was the older one. Yeah, I, I forgot the middle children, didn't I? You guys are used to that, though, aren't you? <laughs> my brother was six years older than me, which means he was, you know, as a child, considerably larger than I was. And uh, we used to fight a lot, and he would use the, his size to his advantage and I specifically remember he used to love pinning me down to the ground he would sit on top of me with his knees and pin my shoulders to the ground and the family dog our our Boston Terrier Gloria named Caesar would love to come join in, in the, on the fun when my brother would hold me down and he would start napping at my ears <laughs> and it was traumatic man my brother was just 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 ruthless and man it was just a really really traumatic experience for me but I got him back I'll put a stop to this. My mom, mom, she used to have these, these plastic runners in, in our house. You know, they still sell these, right? You put them in high traffic areas to kind of keep, to protect your carpet. But underneath of these things are spikes, plastic spikes. My brother used to love walking around the house barefoot. <laughs> so one day I went through the house and I went to every runner, and I flipped them upside down, and I went to the back bedroom where my brother was at, and I walked back there, and I just slugged them as hard as I could, and I took off running. And the race began. And I mean, I was gone. And he, my brother didn't notice that I was kind of <laughs> walking on one side of these runners. And I was out the back door heading to the neighbor's house, and then all of a sudden I heard this blood-curdling scream. <laughs> And I heard his body hit the ground as he, you know, in a thud. And, and I don't know, I, I thought I must have killed him or something. 
Because when my mama got home, I got in trouble. You believe I was the one that got in trouble. I mean, does that sound fair? No. <laughs> you didn't think of that? Yeah, well, you know. Stick around. I have all kinds of advice and tips for you, Jimmy. But as most of us who grew up with siblings know, sometimes life just isn't fair. Sometimes... They get the cooler toy than you do, or at least that's what you think, or that's what it looks like to you. Sometimes they get to go spend the night with a friend, and you get to stay home and do the dishes. Sometimes when they turn 16, they get the cool car, and you get the not-so-cool car. At least that's your perception. Things are not always fair. And it wasn't until I became a parent that I began to realize that if there was any fairness in parenting, it was never intentional, because parenting is just a hard job. And Balancing the scales, is just, it's, it just takes a lot of work and effort. But sibling rivalry is rooted in this competitive attitude and concerns about fairness is one of the main causes of this rivalry, right? So here Jesus uses this parable to tell the story of these two brothers in the scandalous way that the younger brother was exalted over the older brother even after all the things that the older brother brother had done <laughs> at least in his eyes you know his eyes is like I did all these things for you I was loyal I stayed I did what I was supposed to and here you are celebrating the younger brother now let's not forget who Jesus was talking to I don't want us to miss this you got to go all the way back to verse 1 in chapter 15 but it was the tax collectors and the sinners I, I love how there's two categories here you have sinners and you got the tax collectors <laughs> They're like the worst of the worst, right? Anybody here work for the IRS? Good. The tax collectors were... <laughs> yeah, there, there's, a, there's a whole history there of, of tax collection in the, in the Roman Empire, so we won't get into all that. But, and also we had the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. Now Jesus looks around the room, he assesses his audience, and then he weaves together this, this brilliant story this good news story and he directs it to both sides of the room in this unique way just like Jesus told the parable of the lost sheep and the lost coin and the lost son in response to the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttering about the sinners that he was hanging out with he wanted them to understand the intense love God has for the lost and the rejoicing that takes place in heaven when a sinner repents this is the beauty of the prodigal, and Micah did a wonderful job unpacking that part of the story for us last week. But the story didn't end with the little brother, did it? It could have. Jesus could have easily wrapped things up there, boom, happy ending. Let the credits roll. But he couldn't do it. He couldn't end it there because there was still something that needed to be addressed. Jesus needed to address the self-righteousness of the Pharisees, and he does that using the older brother. You see, the Pharisees thought that they were the righteous ones and that they were better than everyone, and when it came to following the rules, they probably were. No wonder they were offended when, when Jesus was hanging out with, with sinners and tax collectors. So when Jesus told this parable, he used this opportunity to teach them about more than just the excessive love of God. He uses this opportunity to take a swipe at self-righteousness with the older, older brother's reaction to the lost son. 
Now, in his book, The Prodigal, the Prodigal God, Tim Keller suggests that most people fall into one of two categories. The younger brother types are the one who are adventurous and risk-taking. They distrust institutions like government and religion. They shake off constraints and desire to experience all that life has to offer. Some of you are thinking, hmm, is that me? The older brother types are the rule keepers and the people pleasers who work stable, predictable jobs, hold traditional values, and are risk averse. I tend to believe that there's a little of both in all of us. The ratios may be just a little different based on personality types. But the older brother thought that because he obeyed the rules, he deserved his father's blessing. All these years I've been slaving for you and you wouldn't even give me a young goat. Now who hasn't experienced that problem? Wouldn't even give me a goat. He was mad because he didn't think he was getting what he deserved for his faithful service. His motive was to receive. It wasn't about showing love to his father. Perhaps the real reason the older brother was angry was because the younger brother had squandered half of their shared inheritance, and now that he has been welcomed back, now he was going to have to share his inheritance. That was probably his calf that they cooked. He didn't care about his father any more than his younger brother. He also thought his brother's sinfulness was unforgivable. The older brother was tore up because his little brother, who had went and did all these things, has now become the object of his father's affection and celebration. His father might be willing to forgive him, but he wasn't going to. Mm -mm. His standards were much higher than his dad's. The younger brother might still be his father's son, but he wasn't his brother anymore. He resented his father's joy and he refused to share in it. I mean, think of the, the long, dark, heartbroken nights that his father had spent worrying about his son, just pacing back and forth in front of the window, looking down the road, hoping, praying that one day his son would appear. And every day up to that day, he, he was just in utter misery and in torment, worrying about his lost son. Think about his dis disappointment as, as days turned into months, maybe even years, longing for him to return. And, and now he's so full of joy that everyone in the household and probably even in the town has come to celebrate with him and the older son won't even come to the party. Talk about a party pooper. He didn't share his father's heart. He didn't share his joy. As followers of Christ, we should have our hearts broken by the things that break the heart of God. You believe that? Shouldn't we? And they should also be filled with joy by the things that bring God joy. That means we need to know Him and what He truly wants. Now, here lies the issue with trying to see the heart of God through the eyes of humanity. It's too difficult to comprehend and it just doesn't even make sense sometimes and it's not always fair. We don't get it because we equate being good with being Christian. If that's what you believe, then I'm afraid I have to break it to you that the Bible tells us that none of us are good. None of us. Paul tells us in Romans 3, none is righteous. No, not one. 
No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Prophet Isaiah tells us that our most righteous acts are simply filthy rags. The best that we can hope to do, the best that we can hope to offer up to God through the eyes of God without a Savior are just filthy rags. Now the point here is not to beat us up or to, or to make us feel like any attempt to be good is a waste of time. But the point here is to highlight our desperate need for a Savior, our desperate need for Christ. Now, I had to learn this myself in my younger years the hard way. I grew up in a faith community filled with loving, wonderful, and nurturing folk that I still hold the highest regard even to this day. But unfortunately, their understanding of the gospel, in my view, was, was lacking in grace. Or at least that that's, was my understanding of how it was being taught. See, I saw Christianity as a book of rules that I simply could not live up to. And after years of not being able to live up to the standard that I thought the Bible was setting for me, I found it was just easier to walk away, so that's what I did for over 10 years. I was gone to the far-off land. And when I was brought back to my faith through the love of some more wonderful folk and a good woman, that is when I discovered this concept of grace. And I'm telling you, it was a game changer. It changed everything for me. So hear me when I say this. If you are only being good to earn favor with God, then just like the older brother and just like the younger brother, you might be lost. And your faith is not sustainable. If you keep the rules so that God will hear your prayers and bless you, you've missed the point. If your relationship with Jesus is limited to just getting your ticket punched to the next place, well, then you might be missing the point. See, here's the thing. These attitudes are missing the most critical ingredient of our faith, and that is grace. Because if religion for you is simply keeping a list of rules, living right and doing the right things, then you've confused Christianity with something called moralism. And in the absence of grace, that's what Christianity is. It's just simply moralism. Now, moralism denotes the idea that God's love, approval, and acceptance are based on our moral performance. It says that your good deeds set the relationship status between you and God. Moralism says that the amount of favor and blessing that God will send your way is directly proportional to, to the amount of obedience that you are to him. Essentially, your identity and self-worth ride on how good of a person you are. The gospel, on the other hand, is the exact opposite. A gospel-centered approach denotes this idea that God's love, approval, and acceptance are based on Jesus' moral performance. Not ours. It says our relationship status with God was based on Jesus' works, not ours. And our identity and our self-worth are determined by how great loves us. And Jesus' sacrifice at the cross and his death are proof of how much God loves us. These are counterintuitive and even counter-religious truths. It's almost a paradox. It is a paradox. And it's the gospel that makes Christianity different from every other religion. 
Moralism primarily emphasizes Christian living, but the gospel primarily emphasizes Christ dying for our inability to live like Christ. The paradox. Moralism promises something it actually can never deliver. For instance, it makes you inevitably self-righteous when you succeed. It makes you despair when you fail. That was my story. If you're a generally moral person, your position before God is because of your ability to do good works. So you boast in yourself. And if you're a generally immoral person, your position before God is because of your inability to do good works. So you despair. Therefore, it's inevitable that moral, morality, moralism, religiously becomes a dead end. You can't really be moral by approaching it this way. But the gospel makes a promise, and it actually delivers even more. It promises a Savior for your brokenness. And your understanding of such grace is actually the empowerment to transform your heart of rebellion toward God and cause you to love Him. And here's the paradox. Because of your love for God, you become moral. Do you see that? Are you with me? Because of your love for God, you become moral. The gospel, therefore, breeds a culture of confidence, not self-righteousness. Because Christ gained all that is to be gained. And it also breeds humility, not despair. Because we're all equally undeserving. We're all equally forgiven. And we're all equally cherished. Moralism is exclusive. Only the good get right with God. But the gospel is inclusive. All people can get right with God because of Jesus. Now, so what does all this mean? Do Christians simply neglect morality? No. Going back to the paradox of Christian morality, if you treat Christianity primarily as a morality, you won't get... Christian morality or Jesus. But if you go to Christianity's Christ and relate to Jesus on his terms, you'll get both. If you primarily seek the law over grace, you'll get neither. But if you seek Jesus, you'll get both. Now, in our defense, it's hard for us to wrap our hand, head around this just because everything else in our lives, everything else in this world doesn't work this way. Okay, We're taught from a young age, you've got to roll up your sleeves, you've got to work hard. If you want something in life, you've got to go out and earn it because nothing is free. You have to earn it. So it's only natural that we would approach religion this way. So we have to make ourselves, it kind of goes against the grain of our being to understand Grace is offered to us as a free gift. Robert Capone, I believe is how you say his name, he's an Episcopal priest, he says this, even to this day, grace remains hard to swallow. Religiosity and moralism go down easier than free forgiveness. Clearly, the older brother lived his life through this lens of moralism, didn't he? 
we also need to guard ourselves from not becoming like the older brother. Older brother syndrome, if you will. Christian author John Ortberg said, uh, one of the hardest things in the world is to stop being the prodigal son without turning into the older brother. We all run the risk of becoming like the older brother. If we do the right things for the wrong reasons, then we become like the older brother. If we worship a, a God of our own design, created in our own image, then we become like the older brother. How do you know that? You know that you're worshiping a God of your own design when your God hates the same people you do. If we try to be gatekeepers of God's grace, then we become like the older brother. Now, we talk a lot about being a welcoming church, but what are our limits? Ooh, this is a tough one. Think about it. Should we have any limits? Do we only want to extend God's grace to those who look like we do? Talk like we do? Act like we do? Smell like we do? I mean, let's be real here. What is your perception of the boundaries of God's grace? Maybe you're here this morning and you're thinking to yourself, I could never be one of those people. I, I couldn't be pharisaical. God loves everybody, and who am I to judge who is deserving and who isn't? Well, if that is you, I've got two words for you. Jeffrey Dahmer. You guys remember this guy? If you didn't know who this was, I'll tell you real quick. He was known as the Monster of Milwaukee. He was an American serial killer who killed 17 people between the years of 1978 and 1991. Now, I can't in good conscience stand up here this morning and describe all of the vile acts this man was engaged in. But it was heavily televised all over the news back in the 90s, as I'm sure many of you remember. Dahmer was sentenced to 16 consecutive life sentences. And in 1994, he was murdered by a fellow inmate. But before he left this world, he made the news one more time. The world was shocked when it became public that Dahmer had repented and surrendered his life to Christianity through the ministry of a pastor by the name of Roy Radcliffe. This is a quote from Dahmer before he died. There has to come a point where a person has to become accountable for what he's done. You can't go around making excuses, blaming other people. He goes on, I've since become to believe that the Lord Jesus Christ is the true creator of the heavens and the earth, and I have accepted him as my Lord and Savior, and I believe that I, as well as everyone else, will be accountable to him. Now, if you remember this story, you might remember the public outrage at such an event, both by believers and non-believers. No one wanted to accept that the grace and the love of God could reach this far and change a heart that was this evil. Max Licato, you guys like Max? In his book, In the Grip of Grace, Max Licato says it best, grace for a cannibal? Maybe you have the same reservations, if not about Dahmer, perhaps about someone else. You ever wrestled with the deathbed conversion of a rapist or the 11-hour conversion of a child molester? We've sentenced them behind bars and we locked the door. They are forever imprisoned by our disgust. And then the impossible happens. They repent. 
And our response, God's not going to let you off that easy. Not after what you did. I mean, God is kind, but he's not a pushover. Grace is just for average sinners, not deviants like you. And then he references the Apostle Paul in Romans 1. Perhaps you remember the Apostle Paul in Romans 1. He begins to list all of these sins, sexual sin, evil, selfishness, hatred, jealousy, murder, just to name a few. And we want to shout, yeah, Paul, get them, tell them. About time someone spoke out against sin, nail those heathens, string them up, we'll stand by you. I mean, we decent law-abiding folk are with you. And what's Paul's response? Well, just flip the page, go to chapter 2. This is from the message, I love this. But if you think that leaves you on the high ground, where you can point your finger at others, think again. Every time you criticize someone, you condemn yourself. It takes one to know one. Judgmental criticism of others is a well-known way of escaping detection in your own crimes and misdemeanors, but God isn't so easily diverted. He sees right through all such smoke screens, and he holds you to what you've done. Now, I've got to be honest. I, I can't stand here and tell you that I know the final outcome of what happened to Dahmer. Where, where, where is Dahmer now? I don't hold the gavel. I don't wear the robe, and I don't want to. Neither do you. But I can tell you this. As disturbing as it might be that someone as vile as Jeffrey Dahmer could be the recipient of God's grace and forgiveness, shouldn't I at least be willing to see and appreciate the beauty in that? Shouldn't I at least be willing to celebrate the power of of a father's love that could turn a heart as dark as his. I should be ecstatic at this realization of God's goodness and limitless boundaries that can separate us from our sins as far as the east is from the west. Through the power of Christ, our sins have been laid on the ocean's floor, nailed to the cross over 2,000 years ago, and every time we want to point fingers, every time we... We, we, we want to put God in a box and become the gatekeepers of his forgiveness and his grace. We cheapen the work of the cross. And we become an obstacle for all the prodigals who are just trying to get home. I want to leave you with a tough story. This is the opening story to one of my favorite books. I've, I've shared this here before, but I think it merits repeating. This is from a book called What's So Amazing About Grace. It was written by Philip Yancey. It was also included in his first book, uh, The Jesus That I Never Knew. Now, this story was told by a social worker that knew Yancey. He was a social worker who worked in the urban area of Chicago, and he said this. A prostitute came to me in wretched straits, homeless and sick, unable to buy food for her two-year-old daughter. Through sobs and tears, this is the tough part, through sobs and tears, she told me she had been renting out her daughter, her two-year-old daughter, to men who were interested in sex. She made more renting out her daughter for an hour than she could on her own in a night. She had to do it, she said, to support her own drug habit, 
He goes on to say, I could hardly bear hearing this story. For one thing, it made me legally liable. I'm required to report cases of child abuse. And I had no idea what to say to this woman. At last, I asked if she had ever thought of going to a church for help. And I will never forget the look of pure, naive shock that crossed her face when she said, Church? Why would I ever go there? I was already feeling terrible about myself. They would just make me feel worse. He goes on to say, what struck me about my friend's story is that women, much like this prostitute, once fled toward Jesus, not away from him. The worse a person felt about herself, the more likely she saw Jesus as a refuge. Has the church lost that gift? Evidently, the down and out who flocked to Jesus when he lived on earth no longer feel welcome among his followers. What has happened? Now, I'm reading this. And I'm wrestling, man, this is tough stuff. I mean, this is heavy stuff. I realize this. I, I, we're throwing a lot of really heavy stuff at you this morning, but it's important. And I was like, I, I don't know how, how you guys are going to react to this. And then I thought to myself, because it really bothered me. But if I'm more worried about the disgusting, vile nature of this story than I am about the simple fact that this person did not feel that Jesus was accessible to her. And am I not like the older brother? You see, only Christianity, this is C.S. Lewis' quote, only Christianity dares to make God's love unconditional. It's the only religion that promises that. And the childhood saying remains true. There is nothing that we can do to make God love us more. And there is nothing that we can do to make God love us less. This is the gospel message. Anything else is just older brother talk. This is the good news, and it's just that. It's good. Because if it isn't good, it isn't God. Amen? Let's pray. Forgive us, God. For the times that we, we struggle. We can't comprehend things, so Lord, it helps us to know you more and to hear these things and to talk about these things, but it's just so hard to get our mind wrapped around the beauty of your grace. It's more than we can just understand. So forgive us, God, when we want to take this free gift that you've given us and throw it back in a box and wrap it back up. Not our intent. We thank you for your grace. We are in desperate need of your grace. But even more so, there are so many others out there that needs to hear about it. If we stand in the way of that, forgive us. Make us aware and help us to be better. We love you and we praise you. 